Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You listen to the sound of universal compassion. Today is the twenty-eighth of August. We will continue listen to Tenjin's previous program with the book Mind Trainings Like the Rays of Sun by Lam Kapow. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with three dollars worth of stamps in an envelope to PO Box eight two one four six Highland Park, Howick, Auckland, or you can phone zero nine two seven one three three seven seven. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. And I hope all is well with you. Let's start right off today with motivation. Let's take a moment to go into ourselves. To look at our motivation for being here and make sure it's fast and most beneficial. That is bodhicitta, the intention to participate, so that we can eventually become enlightened, to help both ourselves and all other living beings in the best ways possible. And let's try to have that kind of motivation. But if it does seem too hard, at least may this program become the cause for our own liberation. Thank you. Do you remember Clive James, the author, critic, broadcaster, and memorist, and host of Saturday Night Clive? Even mentioning him, I'm probably showing my age, but I thought he was fun to watch on TV. His TV appearances are not though the reason I'm bringing him up. He's also a poet, which you might not have known but do now, and one of his poems is a peon on the remaindering of a book written by an enemy. The book of my enemy has been remaindered. He starts off, and I am pleased. In vast quantities, it has been remaindered, like a van load of counterfeit that has been seized and sits in piles in a police warehouse. My enemy's much prized effort sits in piles in the kind of bookshop where remaindering occurs. Great square stacks of rejected books, and between them. Isles, one passes down, reflecting on life's vanities, pausing to remember all those thoughtful reviews lavished to no avail upon one's enemy's book. For behold, here is that book among these ranks and banks of duds, these ponderous and seemingly irreducible cans of complete stiffs. The book of my enemy has been remaindered, and I rejoice. It has gone with bowed head like a defeated legion beneath the yoke. What avail him now his awards and prizes, the praise expended upon his meticulous technique, his individual new voice? Knocked into the middle of next week, his brainchild now consorts with the bad buys, the sinkers, clinkers, dogs and dregs, the Edsels of the world of movable type, the bummers that no amount of hype could shift. The unbudgeable turkeys, yea, his slim volume with its understated wrapper bathes in the blare of the bright, brightly jacketed Hitler's war machine. His unmistakably individual new voice shares the same scrapyard with the forlorn skyscraper of the Kung Fu cookbook. His honesty, proclaimed by himself and believed by others, 
his renowned abhorrence of all posturing and pretense, is there with Pertwee's promenades and pierrots, 100 years of seaside entertainment. And oh, this above all, his sensibility, his sensibility and its hair-like filaments, his delicate, quivering sensibility, is now as one with Barbara Windsor's Book of Boobs, a volume graced by the descriptive rubric, My Boobs Will Give Everyone Hours of Fun. Soon now, a book of mine could be remaindered also, though not to the monumental extent in which the chastisement of remaindering has been meted out to the book of my enemy. Since, in the case of my own book, it will be due to a miscalculated print run, a marketing error, nothing to do with merit. But just supposing that such an event should hold some slight element of sadness, it will be offset by the memory of this sweet moment. Chill the champagne and polish the crystal goblets. The book of my enemy has been remaindered, and I am glad. That is Clive James on finding a book of his enemy on the shelves of a bookshop that specializes in book remainders. Now, in case you don't know what book remaindering is, it is what happens when a bookseller has large numbers of a book that has stopped being attractive to buyers. So instead of sending his inventory of such books to a recycler, the bookseller might try to sell it off at a much reduced price. According to Wikipedia, typically hardcovers and paperbacks sold directly to sales outlets are remaindered. Mass market paperbacks are more usually stripped of their covers and then recycled as cardboard or paper. About remaindered books, Wikipedia says a book that might retail for $20 will typically be purchased by someone specializing in remainders for $1 and resold for approximately $5. Anyway, I guess authors would not much enjoy seeing piles of their precious books going for next to nothing, and so Clive James gloats over his enemy's discomfort. I opened the program with this poem because, of course, it relates very much to what we've been talking about in our last program. That is schadenfreude, delight in another person's misfortune. Now, if you were with us, you will remember that the discussion came out of an instruction in the text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun that we've been going through. That instruction in the form of a slogan is Don't seek others' misery as a means to happiness, which of course has a lot to do with schadenfreude. Now I don't know if Clive James wrote his poem tongue-in-cheek or if it was meant seriously, but from a Buddhist point of view, when we rejoice at another's misfortune, we're actually inviting our own misfortune, and others will then no doubt gloat at our suffering. Schadenfreude is a recipe for misery, and that is enough reason to train to neutralize the instinct for it in our minds. Echoing our discussion last week, last week on Schadenfreude, in an article on health.usnews.com, Mina Chikara, an assistant professor at Harvard University and a researcher into Schadenfreude and empathy, says... Feeling schadenfreude is a very human experience. Even when there's not a tangible benefit to the observer or some greater social justice served, other people's misfortunes are pleasurable in part because they make people feel better about themselves. It seems to be born mostly out of social comparison processes. If I compare myself with others and find that I'm not as good as they are, I'm much more likely to be pleased when they get taken down a notch. But other situations also are grounds for schadenfreude. 
personal gain from the other's misery, a personal dislike for the sufferer, envy and any combination of these. Low esteem or depression may also trigger schadenfreude according to the article because it helps people to feel better about themselves. The article quotes Catherine Chambliss, Chair of Psychology and Neuroscience at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania, who says, When you're depressed and you're feeling inadequate, other people's successes become unbearable to witness because it sets up a comparison that makes you feel worse. It's kind of true that misery loves company. The problem is, schadenfreude in people with depression ends up being toxic to their friendships, especially if it's expressed. It can cause people who already feel sad or despondent to become socially isolated, which can then worsen their depression. Shamless also goes on to say that although schadenfreude may make us feel good at the moment, it actually does not address our own underlying pain. In fact, it may just make it worse through associated feelings of guilt. So perhaps it's better to find ways to neutralize our feelings of gladness at others' suffering, like concentrating on their good characteristics, or developing compassion by putting ourselves in their place. How would we feel if something went terribly wrong for us and others laughed at our misery? Instead of looking out for others' misfortunes, we can focus on celebrating their successes and good fortune. Basically, we have to stop seeing ourselves as competitors. Shambliss says we have to stop engaging in upward or downward social comparisons. Instead, we would do better to focus on our own values and purpose and set goals accordingly. She says that this will help us feel better about ourselves, improve our mood and our relationships. Now, if you were with us last week, you may also remember we quoted Treska Weinstein from www.sanima.com, who suggested the Buddhist four immeasurables, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity as antidotes to schadenfreude. She also referenced Arnie Kozak, Buddhist scholar and clinical assistant professor in psychiatry at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, and Sam Chase, author of Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, when she wrote, Kozak and Chase point to a response to schadenfreude that transcends ego and our limited notions of who we are. In Buddhism, it's called anatta, or not-self. The self that can experience envy and schadenfreude experiences itself as a distinct, enduring entity that can be afflicted by the rises and falls of life's fortunes, Kozak says. If the self, however, is experienced as a fluid-changing process that is not owned by the person, difficult emotions are less likely to arise. Yoga philosophy echoes that viewpoint. It's built on the belief that our sense of a stable and separate self is largely an illusion and that the energy we devote to maintaining that illusion is our primary source of suffering, Chase explains. So, whatever sense of security or self-esteem we get from schadenfreude is ultimately rather flimsy. It serves as a kind of psychological band-aid covering over, but not healing, a deeper wound in ourselves. Tresco Weinstein goes on, While most of us aren't anywhere near dissolving our distinct self into a greater whole, perhaps we can start by simply using that occasional flicker of malicious joy as a bell of mindfulness, a reminder to pause and observe what thought pattern, insecurity 
or lack could be triggering it. Accepting that feeling, forgiving ourselves for it, and practicing unconditional loving kindness towards our own frailties might be the first steps in extending that same compassion to everyone else. That's Tresca Weinstein. Echoes of Pema Chodron, don't you think? But now I think we've said enough about why we should not rejoice in others' misery and we should move on with Namka Pal and mind training like the rays of the sun. We've come to the end of the section titled What Appears in the Text as Maxims and now the author goes on to talk about the precepts of mind training. Remember that mind training like the rays of the sun is actually Namka Pal's commentary on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. So that is why he writes about what appears in the text, that is the seven points of mind training, as maxims and verses. The precepts follow this pattern and also come as a series of verses and maxims, although in English they all appear as the same type of pithy sayings. In the Tibetan, I guess, the first part comes as verses, so he has divided this section into two, what appears as verse and what appears as maxims. And we start off with the first, what appears as verse. You have to listen a little bit carefully, because standing alone, these sayings may not make all that much sense. For instance, the first one is, every yoga should be performed as one. A bit obscure now. And Namkar Bell doesn't make it all that much clearer with this comment. Ensure that yogas of all such activities as eating, dressing and residing are assimilated into the single practice of training the mind. Now we might get a bit more clarity from Chogyang Trumpa and Pema Chodron's commentary, which both translate the saying into all activities should be done with one intention. In Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving-Kindness, Chogyang Trumpa writes, The one intention is to have a sense of gentleness towards others and a willingness to be helpful to others always. That seems to be the essence of the Bodhisattva vow. In whatever you do, Sitting, walking, eating, drinking, even sleeping, you should always take the attitude of being of benefit to all sentient beings. And Pema Chodron, in Start Where You Are, A Guide to Compassionate Living, echoes her teacher with, This one intention is to awaken bodhicitta, to awaken the heart. We could say, all activities should be done with the intention of communicating. This is a practical suggestion. All activities should be done with the intention of speaking so that another person can hear you rather than using words that cause the barriers to go up and the ears to close. In this process, we also learn how to listen and how to look. Now, this sounds very much like the practices of deep listening and loving speech recommended by the wonderful Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh. In his little book, True Love, A Practice for Awakening the Heart, he writes about these practices. Although the book is written with people who love each other in mind, we can apply its advice to all those we communicate with. After all, the Bodhicitta teachings encourage us to love all beings equally. So the more we can implement Thich Nhat Hanh's practices, the wider the ripples of our love will flow. The first chapter is titled, Love is Being There, and it goes like this. To love in the context of Buddhism above all, is to be there. But being there is not an easy thing. Some training is necessary, some practice. If you're not there, how can you love? Being there is very much an art, the art of meditation, 
because meditating is bringing your true presence to the here and now. The question that arises is, do you have time to love? I know a boy of 12 whose father asked him one day, Son, what would you like for your birthday present? The boy did not know how to answer his father, who was also a very rich man, able to buy anything for his son. But the boy did not want anything except his father's presence. Because the role the father played kept him very busy, he did not have time to devote to his wife and children. Being rich is an obstacle to loving. When you're rich, you want to continue to be rich, and so you end up devoting all your time, all your energy in your daily life to staying rich. If this father were to understand what true love is, he would do whatever is necessary to find time for his son and his wife. The most precious gift you can give to the one you love is your true presence. What must we do to really be there? Those who have practiced Buddhist meditation know that meditating is above all being present to yourself, to those you love, to life. So I would propose a very simple practice to you, the practice of mindful breathing. Breathing, I know that I am breathing in. Breathing, I know that I am breathing out. If you do that with a little concentration, then you will be able to really be there. Because in our daily life, our mind and our body are rarely together. Our body might be there, but our mind is somewhere else. Maybe you're lost in regrets about the past, maybe in worries about the future, or else you're preoccupied with your plans, with anger, or with jealousy. And so your mind is rarely there with your body. Between the mind and the body, there is something that can serve as a bridge. The moment you begin to practice mindful breathing, your body and your mind begin to come together with one another. It takes only 10 to 20 seconds to accomplish this miracle called oneness of body and mind. With mindful breathing, you can bring body and mind together in the present moment, and every one of us can do it, even a child. The Buddha left us an absolutely essential text, the Anapanasati Sutta, or discourse on the practice of mindful breathing. If you really want to practice Buddhist meditation, you must study this text. If the father I was talking about had known that, he would have begun to breathe in and breathe out mindfully. And then one or two minutes later, he would have approached his son, he would have looked at him with a smile, and he would have said this, My dear, I am here for you. This is the greatest gift you can give to someone you love. Do you have enough time to love? Can you make sure that in your everyday life you have a little time to love? We do not have much time together. We are too busy. In the morning while eating breakfast, we do not look at the person we love. We do not have enough time for it. We eat very quickly while thinking about other things. And sometimes we even hold a newspaper that hides the face of the person we love. In the evening, when we come home, we're too tired to be able to look at the person we love. We must bring about a revolution in our way of living, our everyday lives, because our happiness, our lives, are within ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to talk about four mantras that we can learn to use to make sure that our love has its greatest effect. The first is the one he's already mentioned. Dear one, I am here for you. The second he expresses like this, 
When you are really there, you have the ability to recognize the presence of the other. To be there is the first step, and recognizing the presence of the other is the second step. To love is to recognize. To be loved is to be recognized by the other. If you love someone and you continue to ignore his or her presence, this is not true love. Perhaps your intention is not to ignore this person, but the way you act speak does not manifest the desire to recognize the presence of the other. When we are loved, we wish the other to recognize our presence, and this is a very important practice. You must do whatever is necessary to be able to do this. Recognize the presence of the person you love several times each day. To attain this goal, it's also necessary to practice oneness of body and mind. Practice an in-breath and an out-breath three times, five times, seven times. Then you approach this person, you look at him or her mindfully with a smile and you begin to say the second mantra. Dear one, I know that you are here and it makes me very happy. If you practice in this way, with a lot of concentration and mindfulness, you will see that this person will open immediately, like a flower blossoming. To be loved is to be recognized, and you can do that several times a day. It's not difficult at all, and it's a true meditation. Then the third mantra is used when the other person is suffering. Thich says, At such a time you go to him or her with your body and mind unified, with concentration, and you utter the third mantra, Dear one, I know that you are suffering, that is why I am here for you. Because when we are suffering, we have a strong need for the presence of the person we love. If we are suffering and the man or woman we love ignores us, then we suffer more. So what we can do right away is to manifest our true presence to the beloved person and say the mantra with all our mindfulness. Dear one, I know that you are suffering, that's why I am here for you. Even before you actually do something to help, the person you love is relieved. Your presence is a miracle. Your understanding of his or her pain is a miracle. And you are able to offer this aspect of your love immediately. The fourth mantra is the most difficult one to practice, he says, because it's needed when you are suffering and you believe the other person is the cause of your suffering. You are deeply hurt and feel like going to your room, closing the door and crying, you refuse to go to the other person to ask for help. Thich Nhat Hanh says, So now it is pride that is the obstacle. According to the teaching of the Buddha, in true love there is no place for pride. If you are suffering, every time you are suffering, you must go to the person in question and ask for his or her help. That is true love. Do not let pride keep you apart. If you think your love for this person is true love, you must overcome your pride. You must always go to him or her. That is why I have invented this mantra for you. Practice so as to bring about the oneness of your body and mind before going to the person to say the fourth mantra. Dear one, I am suffering. Please help. This is very simple, but very hard to do. And what can you do if there is already too much suffering between the two of you and communication is practically non-existent. Thich Nhat Hanh says that this lump of suffering in us is samyojana, which is translated as internal formation. He says, when you say something that makes another person suffer, that person develops an internal formation. 
If that person is trained in Buddhism, he or she will know how to untie that knot. If not, he or she will let it remain there in the depths of their consciousness. If you are a person who practices mindfulness, you will be aware that a knot has been formed in the person you love, and you will know how to untie it. Every day we say or do things that might leave behind internal formations in the person we love. Following that, then the suffering and pain can grow, and the person we love turns into something like a bomb that might explode at any time. A few words are all it takes to trigger anger in this person, who you are afraid to approach and who you are afraid to talk to, because he or she has become a bomb loaded with too much suffering. When you try to get away from him or her, this person thinks that you do so out of contempt and their suffering increases. You also have become a bomb because you have lost the ability to speak the language of peace, of understanding. You have lost the ability to listen and so all communication has become impossible. In Buddhism, we talk about a bodhisattva called Avalokiteshvara, the one who has the ability to listen and to understand the suffering of others. If we invoke his name, it is in order to learn to listen. In everyday life, deep listening, attentive listening, is a meditation. If you know the practice of mindful breathing, if you wish to maintain calm and living compassion within you, then deep listening will be possible. Through the practice of walking meditation, through sitting meditation, through mindful breathing, we can cultivate calm, we can cultivate awareness, and we can cultivate compassion. And that way, we will be able to sit there and listen to the other. The other suffers as long as he is in need of someone to listen to him. And you, you are the person who can do it. If someone has to have recourse to a psychotherapist, it's because no one in his house can listen. Thich Han says that to love, we have to train in being able to listen. By listening with calm and understanding, he says, we can ease the suffering of another person. An hour spent in this way can already relieve a great deal of another person's pain. In Plum Village, our practice place, deep listening is a very important practice. Every week, we get together once or twice to practice listening deeply to each other. As we listen, we do not say anything. We breathe deeply and we open our hearts in order to really listen to one another. One hour of this kind of listening is very effective and it is something very precious that can be offered to the person you love. And then Thich Nhat Hanh also talks of loving speech. We must learn to speak with love again, he says. There are pacifists who can write protest letters of great condemnation but who are incapable of writing a love letter. You have to write in such a way that the other person is receptive towards reading. You have to speak in such a way that the other person is receptive towards listening. If you do not, it's not worth the trouble to write or to speak. To write in such a way is to practice meditation. He then talks about a young American who came to his place to practice. He says, One day he was asked to write a letter to his mother, which was easy for him. On the other hand, it was impossible for him to write a letter to his father. His father had died, but he still suffered every time he thought of him. Just the idea of picking up a pen to write to his father already caused him a great deal of suffering. I proposed the following practice to him. For one week, 
Thich Nhat Hanh made him practice mindful breathing, seeing himself as a child of five, and for the next week, seeing his father as a child of five. He'd never imagined that his father could have been a child of five, and suddenly he recognized, and it was the first time that he realized that his father had suffered as a little boy, and suddenly he felt compassion. And finally, one evening, he found it possible to write a first letter to his father, and that transformed him completely. And now, Tignanhan says, he has peace in his heart. Through the energy of mindfulness, the young man saw deeply into the nature of suffering, his own and his father's. And Tignanhan says, freedom will arise as a result of your sustaining a deep vision into the nature of your pain. Solidity, freedom, calm, and joy are the fruits of meditation. I hope you find this helpful in making all your activities, all your interactions, in the nature of loving communication. But now our time is up, and we must say farewell. Thanks for being with us, and please dedicate any positive energy we've accumulated to enlightenment for all beings. Thanks again, and goodbye 